Well, if everyone would please uh, remain standing and open up your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at a passage today that is known and entitled as the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. To introduce us to the text, I'm just going to read for us the first five verses of Matthew 21. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Let's pray for our text today. Well, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the supper. We thank you for the encouragement in Christ that it brings to us, for the, for the tasting of the elements and for the, just the way that it brings us back to the gospel and to what Christ has done for us. We thank you for that reminder. And as we turn now to study your word, Lord, I pray that you would honor yourself by honoring your word in our church and that you would bless us through the preaching of your word. Bless my mouth and, and bless your congregation today, Lord. Have mercy on us. Let us see our Savior. We've tasted of him. Let us continue to taste of Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who were here last week, um, you'll remember that we looked last week at 2 Samuel the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9, uh, actually. And, and in that very narrative of that Old Testament book, uh, we were witnessing the ascension of David to the throne as king over God's people, Israel. And it was in that account that we noted um, not only King David's ability to uh, powerfully establish himself as a king, a king who could bring a peace, a peace and a rest to God's people by suppressing all of their enemies. But we also noted last week that King David made this amazing decision to show an unconditional mercy and an unconditional grace to some of his enemies. And what I did last week with that, with that text was I attempted to present that for what I thought that it was, that it's a typological account of the promised and greater king to come, a future king uh, that would actually descend from David's very own seed. And, and I felt justified in doing that uh, because, again, the New Testament authors tell us that King David played uh, a typological role in a, in a preparatory role as a typological figure of Jesus Christ. And so as you study the life of King David, and as much as he is there, uh, depicting for us the coming Christ and the coming King, uh, he therefore could be referred to as a type of Christ. And that's what we looked at last week, the type, King David. But this week, I want us to turn to look at the fulfillment of the type, which is known as the anti-type. I want us to look at King Jesus himself. And so we're turning to this passage, uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 21, known as the triumphal entry. And this is where Jesus Christ comes to Jerusalem to present himself as king. He's presenting himself as king. And so as we look at this text here, uh, I want us to focus in on three important aspects of, of what's transpiring here. Number one, we're going to see how it is that Jesus discloses and reveals his kingship. How does he do it? Secondly, we're going to see why he discloses his kingship in the way that he does. And then lastly, we're going to look at the people's reaction to Jesus Christ 
proclaiming himself to be king. That's where we're going. So uh, let's look first at the setting, a little bit of the context in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 there uh, kind of uh, sets that off for us because there it gave us uh, the setting, the location. It says in verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. And so first, just let me tell you uh, where exactly Jesus is now in the narrative. Uh, the city Bethpage here, Bethpage was just a very small town actually located on the Mount of Olives, which lies just to the east outside of Jerusalem. So they're very close. They're approaching Jerusalem just outside of it to the east. Um, John's gospel also informs us, as he's giving the, the same account and leading up to the same account, I thought it was interesting that uh, just prior to coming here to Bethpage, Jesus has just left Bethany, um, which is just a couple miles more east, further uh, east of Bethpage, but that's where he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so that's just previously transpired. And so Jesus is now being followed by a group of disciples, some of them may be new disciples, uh, having seen the resurrection of Lazarus. They're traveling towards Jerusalem. They're coming down this Roman-built road that goes all the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And I wanted us to look. It's probably on the same page. But note in Matthew chapter 20 here in verse 17 and following, here, Jesus gives a clear indication of why he's even making this trip. Why is he coming to Jerusalem? What's uh, his intentions for heading there? At least one of his intentions and one of his motivations, at least. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will crucify him, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And so here, one of the motivations for this trip to Jerusalem by Jesus Christ, it says that he was setting his face towards Jerusalem for the ultimate purpose of actually laying down his very life. And so this trip uh, to Jerusalem is a special trip. It's a, it's a planned trip. It's a planned occasion. Uh, Jesus here is actually arriving in Jerusalem the, the week prior to the, to the Passover celebration, which is significant as well. He's arriving, uh, most commentators believe, on the Sunday before the Sunday that to us has become known as Palm Sunday uh, for obvious reasons. As we work through the text, we'll see why we've come to call it that. Uh, but Jesus is making this planned trip to Jerusalem here. Many others would also be gathering themselves to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Um, the Passover, of course, just being that annual celebration of the Jews whereby they, they recall and they celebrate um, that great salvation that God provided them during the time of the Exodus, where through the shedding of the Passover lamb's blood, um, they were actually given coverage and protection from the angel of death, and God brought for them a, a great salvation. That's the occasion here. Um, so this, this trip to Jerusalem being made by Jesus and his disciples um, wasn't any normal uh, planned trip and planned occasion. This one was actually orchestrated. This trip was actually planned before the very foundations of the world uh, that Jesus would come here at this time to become the ultimate and to become the final Passover sacrifice. That's part of why Jesus is coming. So as Jesus is coming here to reveal himself, to be that ultimate sacrifice, um, Jesus is also really indiscriminately revealing himself also to be the ultimate king of Israel. He's revealing a couple things here, and we're going to look at how he's revealing his kingship uh, in particular. So the first point that I want us to focus in on here is how Jesus is disclosing his kingship. How is he doing it? And the text tells us. So let's just keep reading here in Matthew chapter 21, uh, picking up in the second part of the verse. It says, now this is how Jesus does it. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, if you didn't already know the purpose behind uh, what Jesus is doing here and, and why it is that he picks a donkey, um, you might find the selection of, of the mode of transportation to be a little odd. Uh, because if you think back just to history in general, um, it, is very, um, it is very different from the way most kings, as they would be arriving into the city that they're going to reign over, uh, most kings would pull up into their city in full battle array, in armor, uh, probably being pulled in chariots of splendor uh, by strong stallions of war. But how does the, the very Lord of glory arrive and profess himself to be king? He selects a donkey, a baby donkey, that is. Uh, it's a very interesting choice by the Lord. It's also very interesting to note here that of all four Gospels, because all four Gospels mention this account, uh, but it's very interesting that Matthew is the only gospel that actually mentions the two disciples being required to gather more than one donkey. You see that in the text where they're called to, uh, you'll find a donkey there and the colt, it says. Uh, Matthew's the only one that uh, actually mentions both animals being called for and brought, which, of course, um, leads many to claim contradiction in the Bible because of that uh, simple fact, but um, I can just assure you, brothers and sisters, that just because one gospel author uh, decides to include additional information that another gospel author includes in no way follows that that's a, a biblical contradiction. Um, it just doesn't follow. Uh, the focal point of the gospel's writings, uh, the gospel author's writings, the focal point is not to count donkeys. That's not why they're writing this. Uh, but they're presenting the Lord's mode of, of transportation for his triumphal entry. That's really the point. And uh, I, I think it's a valid point. I've heard James White say, as people, you know, the Bard Ehrmans uh, seem to claim contradiction. Anytime there's a different um, aspect to these accounts given, they claim, you know, the Bible's in error and it's contradictory. But James White says, well, what would be the point of even having four Gospels if they were all supposed to say the exact same thing? God wouldn't have needed to provide four Gospels at that point. He would have just given us one um, if they were going to report all the same details. So um, fear not when you come across uh, people maybe making that claim at the fact that Matthew here mentions more than one donkey. Um, nothing substantially surprising with that. Um, you also just need to remember that the Gospels, each four Gospels were written by four different people for different purposes, addressing different audiences, um, all of that comes into play in why they say certain things that they don't say. Um, everyone agrees that Matthew, this gospel that we're reading, um, was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Where Look at the gospel of Luke, for instance, in the introduction of that one. He's not writing to a, a large, indiscriminate Jewish audience. Luke is actually a Gentile himself writing to one Gentile uh, in particular, Theophilus. See, so there could be many reasons just with that in mind of why Luke says things he does say and why he doesn't say other things. But God in his wisdom gives us all four of these gospels from different perspectives. And as you put them together, you really just get a, a beautiful uh, multifaceted picture of what Jesus Christ was doing, who he was, and, and what he was revealing about himself. Um, so uh, I think it's also very interesting as we look at the text here um, that I don't know if you noticed it as you read through this text, but I find it fascinating that uh, Jesus somehow knew here uh, that there was going to just be these donkeys, it says, immediately available in this next town over. Uh, I, th I thought that was interesting. And because as you look at the text, it doesn't seem as if the taking of these donkeys was a planned uh, thing by Jesus. In, in verse 3, Jesus actually has to tell the disciples what to do if the owner questions them about what in the world you're doing with my donkeys. He gives them instructions on what to say. So um, how did Jesus know that these donkeys were going to be in the next village over? Uh, well, we can just say very safely that Jesus knows things. Jesus 
Jesus knows things. Um, I just documented a couple of these things here. Um, if you think back to Jesus' calling of Nathaniel, if you want to turn to this one, it's so significant. Um, I'm, I have a couple of these listed. Turn to John chapter 1 just really quickly um, because I just want you to see something that Nathaniel sees, uh, says here with your own eyes. Um, Nathan, uh, Nathaniel here in John chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 47, for instance. Um, notice what Jesus knows here. It says that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus has never met Nathanael up to this point, but he knows uh, the, the righteousness of this Israelite. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. See, Jesus had somehow mysteriously been able to see Nathanael. But look at Nathanael's, I couldn't help but read on to this verse. Look at Nathanael's answer. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The King of Israel. That's what we're looking at at the passage today. And just as I noticed that reference, it's an amazing statement. Look where that statement's being made in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, Nathanael is already recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. And we're going to notice the, really uh, how important that language is and the substance behind it. But that's an amazing early confession based on Jesus' omniscience. Jesus knows uh, Nathanael without even knowing him. And Nathanael uh, confesses him to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. How about John chapter 4, very familiar uh, uh, instance, you don't have to turn there, but just think back to how Jesus knew uh, the entire sinful life of the Samaria, uh, Samarian woman at the well. He recalls to her all of these uh, past illegitimate uh, relationships she's had with men, and she also recognizes, doesn't she, that he's a prophet, she says. Certainly, you must be a prophet. Um, lastly, just by way of example, and I think it's the most frightening example um, you can turn to this one if, if you would like. I should have kept you in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. Um, this is a frightening example of Jesus' omniscience um, as he looks right into the heart of people, as he can see into the hearts of people. John chapter 2, verse 23 says, now this is an earlier trip by Jesus to Jerusalem when he was coming earlier for a different Passover feast. But it says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But notice what Jesus does. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, that's terrifying because Jesus sees right through these people's false faith. He can see right through it, and he knows. He knows the truth. And so I just bring up those points just to, to make the, the bigger point that it's no big deal for Jesus to know that there's a couple donkeys available in the next city over. It's, it's no big issue at all. Looking back at verse 3 again in our text in Matthew 21, uh, what about this wording here? of this response that Jesus gives to the disciples to reply back to the donkey's owner who's questioning them. In verse 3 it said, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. I really, as I was reading this, kind of had to hone in on the fact that Jesus says, and simply says, The Lord has need of them. That's to be their response. The Lord has need of them. Jesus doesn't reply. He doesn't give them the reply. Well, simply, our Lord needs your donkeys. No, he says, the Lord has need of them. An unqualified, articular, ha curios, the Lord, uh, the Lord who happens to be your Lord, who happens to be everyone's Lord, needs these donkeys. And look at the response from that statement, from that declaration that Jesus gives them in the second part of verse 3. It says, and immediately he will send them. 
That's enough answer. The Lord has need of them, and immediately you'll get the response. Um, no questions asked, but upon pronouncement that the Lord has need of them, whoever this owner is, it says, will immediately comply. I just think that's interesting to note that uh, when the Lord Jesus speaks um, sovereignly, he has authority to command um, whatever he wants from whoever he wants. Uh, I couldn't help but think back to like uh, John 18 where Jesus just makes the statement, I am, and the reaction of those even unbelievers is to fall back and uh, fall to the ground. It's just interesting to see how if King Jesus speaks sovereignly in any circumstance, uh, his subjects comply with a newfound ability and will to comply to whatever he says. But this is the way, this is the way here that Jesus is deciding to disclose and reveal his kingship over Jerusalem. It's by obtaining and riding in on a, a donkey, a baby donkey, the foal of a donkey, a colt. Um, this is how he's choosing to do this. So let's look now why Jesus is choosing uh, this mode of transportation and why is he choosing this as his means to reveal his kingship to his people. Well, the answer why is really in short. Uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's knowingly and intentionally fulfilling scriptural prophecy about the Messiah to come. He's very intentionally uh, doing this. Verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, as you look at Jesus fulfilling this scripture here, uh, it's fascinating because one aspect of, of scriptural prophecy that's always amazed me, and I think it is the amazing part of prophecy, is that uh, most normally, prophecy uh, normally has to be fulfilled by God himself. Uh, he normally has to be the one who orchestrates and fulfills prophecy. That's normally what's so amazing about it. Um, if you just consider the other prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his life, um, for instance, his birth in Bethlehem, his lineage uh, from David, his, his sacrifice on the cross at Passover, his, his resurrection. If you think about those kinds of prophecies and that he fulfills, uh, you notice that God has to be the one fulfilling those things because mankind, a, a man, simply a man, cannot determine um, the place of his birth in order to fulfill prophecy. You cannot, you cannot determine the lineage of whom you're going to be born uh, into to fulfill prophecy. You can't raise yourself from the dead to fulfill prophecy. These things must be divinely orchestrated, and, and they, since they are all things that were uh, brought forth in the life of Jesus, we see truly Jesus is the promised one. God uh, oversaw this and orchestrated all of these things to fulfill the Old Testament. Um, but it's interesting because the text we're looking at here in the fulfillment of this prophecy um, it seems to have a very naturalistic fulfillment, does it not? Is there anything supernatural uh, about what's going on here? Well, I think there is, but as you just look at it, um, on the face of it, Jesus knows the prophecy and he fulfills it. The prophecy says, I'm going to come in on a donkey, I find a donkey, and I come in on a donkey and it's fulfilled. Um, it just seems different to me than the way uh, many other prophecies are fulfilled, but even though it's it's less than miraculous, even though it's not a, a seemingly miraculous type of fulfillment of prophecy, um, the significance of this prophecy being fulfilled is there nonetheless, because this event here, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem at this time, all of this is leading up to the crescendo of all of Jesus' life and ministry. Everything is being unfolded. All the purposes of, of his coming are in this next week. Um, all coming to a climax and coming to a head. And so um, let's look at this prophecy here now that Jesus is fulfilling to see exactly what Jesus is revealing about himself as he fulfills this prophecy. Um, again, in verse 4, it said, All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. 
prophet singular, uh, which is interesting because Matthew's actually quoting two different um, prophets here in verse 5, but he's mainly quoting one, hence the prophet singular. But the first part of this uh, fulfill it, uh, fulfillment of Scripture in verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion. That part is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion. If you look back at the book of Isaiah, which you don't, you don't need to turn there. Um, I'll read at least one verse for you. But it's no wonder that, that Matthew would incorporate this verse and implement this saying from Isaiah because when you read the, uh, the rest of Isaiah chapter 62 and if you know the broader context of this section of the book of Isaiah, you know that it's explicitly messianic. It's explicit, explicitly messianic. Let me just read to you um, the whole verse from Isaiah 62, 11 where uh, Matthew was quoting only a small part, but the whole verse says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so it's just interesting that even the, the small quote that uh, Matthew uh, pulls from, and, and, and people wonder, is, is, is this quote here inserted by Matthew looking back and knowing the fulfillment, or was this actually spoken of by Jesus saying this is what was being fulfilled. Um, I'm not sure which way to go on that, and, and I don't know that it necessarily matters, but clearly this scripture is being fulfilled. But even in Isaiah, there's the very clear announcement of this coming one who would bring salvation, and it's going to be in a person. It said his reward will be with him. As it says, the daughter of Zion, uh, that's simply referring to the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem the daughters of Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, the first mention in the Bible of Jerusalem being called Zion, uh, interestingly enough, is, is found back in the book of 2 Samuel that we were in last week. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, Zion, Zion was the city that King David uh, overtook as he was becoming king. Zion uh, was uh, inhabited by Jebusites, and it lied right in between, right on the border between Israel and Judah. And so King David takes this city for himself. Uh, right at, it's going to be right at the center of his kingdom. And he, he, he makes it the center of his kingdom. And uh, as you know, Jerusalem, as it was called Zion, uh, became the center for Yahwehism, the worship of Yahweh. That's where it all uh, centered around this is the city where King David would rule in. This is the city where he would later bring the, the Ark of the Covenant to. This is the city that his son Solomon would build the temple. This is where God was being worshipped. This is the city, Zion, or Jerusalem, that in 1 Kings, as early as 1 Kings 11.36, we find God saying, Jerusalem is the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Jerusalem. We all know and are aware that Jerusalem, all the way up until the first century, from, from 2 Samuel chapter 5 all the way up, had played a very special role in God's redemptive purposes and in redemptive history. It was the place where God was. It was the place that he reserved for his king. It was a place, as we know from being in the book of Hebrews, that was obviously serving a typological function for the heavenly Jerusalem because as in Hebrews 12.22 it says, in speaking of the, the heavenly realities of these earthly types, it says, but we have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem on this earth was, was playing a typological function in, a, in, a, in, the, in the function of a shadow to point us to the, the place where we will ultimately wind up, where the king will be and where God will be the heavenly Jerusalem. So, as Jesus comes here to Zion, to Jerusalem, at the fullness of the times, um, he's fulfilling as well the rest of the text quoted here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. The rest of the quote um, is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That's the part that says, Behold, your king is coming to you. 
gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, quoting from Zechariah, Zechariah is one of the more interesting and fascinating uh, minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's filled with messianic reference and prophecy. Um, and this quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is found in, in a section, a part of Zechariah, which would be chapters 9, 10, and 11, that really pictures this coming Savior, this coming Messiah, in a very humble light, in a, very, in a more meek and humble way. In the next three chapters of Zechariah, uh, 12, 13, 14, Zechariah depicts this coming Savior, this coming Messiah in a more victorious and triumphant and even uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fighting, in a battle uh, sense against his enemies. And so it's interesting that even in the, in the prophecies in Zechariah, you see the distinctions being made between the Messiah and, and even his comings, I would say. Um, the ESV study Bible about this prophecy um, the ESV study Bible alone, no, no other commentaries that I referenced, um, uh, made this reference to Genesis chapter 49. I'll, I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 and 11. Uh, the ESV stubble, uh, study Bible noted that this could have been, um, Genesis 49:10, a very early allusion in prophecy uh, that Zechariah could have been alluding to when he made his prophecy of of the king coming on his colt. Uh, this is what it says back in Genesis chapter 49. As early as Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob, or, or as he's known then as Israel, is calling all of his sons to himself and he's prophesying over each of them, this is what he says in verse 10 concerning Judah. It says, the scepter, the scepter, that kingly scepter, that kingly rod, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah, of course, being the tribe which, from which Christ comes, that, that Jesus Christ comes from. It says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, mysterious word, but some, one translated it as the rest giver, until the rest giver comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And verse 11 is interesting because speaking of this coming one, this rest giver, the king that's coming, verse 11 goes on to say, he ties his foal, his baby donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Very interesting allusion that the ESV pointed out that nobody else seemed to know, but I thought it was interesting enough to, to look at. Maybe you could look at that further, but here in Matthew chapter 21, there is no question that Jesus is intentionally acting out this prophecy from the book of Zechariah, this prophecy of this coming king who's going to uh, come into uh, the city on his donkey, on a colt. He's, he's acting it out to a T. In verses 6 and 7 here in our text really explain how um, all of this fulfillment just plays out uh, perfectly. Verse 6 and 7 say that the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their coats on them, and he sat on the colts, on the, on the coats. So based uh, upon this explicit prophecy of Zechariah and Jesus Christ explicitly fulfilling it, um, anybody in the city, anybody there witnessing this, anyone who knew their Bibles, um, there would have been no misunderstanding about what Jesus was trying to communicate by making this type of entrance. What Jesus was saying to Jerusalem in this moment was, Behold, your king is coming to you. That's what Jesus is saying by coming in this way. This would end up being, in, in one sense, um, the last open call that Jesus would make to Jerusalem to accept himself as the Messiah. Um, this would be really the most final public announcement for him to call the people to accept him. Um, some, as we'll see, joyfully did uh, seemingly accept him, and others um, still refused. But nonetheless, uh, here was the king making his entrance 
uh, not making his entrance from, as I said, as a, from, from a worldly perspective as most kings would, would seem to want to enter their city as. But Jesus Christ is coming mounted on a baby donkey, mounted on a colt, uh, just as the scriptures had foretold. That's how Jesus, and that's why Jesus is coming as he is, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Let's look lastly now at uh, the people's reaction to Jesus' proclamation of himself as Messiah and King. Pick up with me in verse 8 now. It says, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosea to the son of David. I mean, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd is going wild over the entrance of Jesus Christ. Um, several commentators pointed out the fact that if you look in verse 10 and you notice that word there translated stirred, it says that the, the crowds, all the city was stirred. Many translators um, noted that this is much too weak of a translation of, of the word being translated stirred. Eseste is the Greek word, and it's the same word used later in Matthew chapter 27, 51, when it's, it's translated there as the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth eseste, the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So if that helps you imagine the, the, the magnitude of this crowd's reaction, the crowd, as I said, were going wild. The crowd was stirred to the point of shaking and rumbling, and, and, and that is the scene painted for us here as Jesus makes his entrance uh, the crowds are fully committed uh, to being uh, ex or accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah King. They're, they're, they're singing and praising and, and um, they're noticing Jesus' disciples as they've put their coats under Jesus's, uh, on top of Jesus' uh, coat so that he can sit on them. They likewise follow lead and lay their coats down on the roads and, and cut branches down and, and pave the way for the coming King uh, the people are, are, are making a great honor for the Lord as he uh, arrives here. They're, they're allowing the donkeys to trample their coats and, and their garments, um, really affirming what Jesus Christ is, is portraying here before them. I think the crowds are, are unambiguously and obviously making the messianic connection that's, that's going on here. They, they get it. Um, Jesus was portraying this very clearly through that fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and the people respond in verse 9 by saying, Hosanna to the King of David. Hosanna to the King of David, they say. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with how previously in the gospel accounts we know that Jesus had always been very selective. Jesus had always been uh, very careful about who he revealed his messiahship to, right? You, constantly hear of Jesus warning people, please don't tell anybody who I am, you know, go and don't tell anybody. Um, but the people, even though Jesus is finally letting the cat of the bag here, the people of Israel have already been on to him. They, they've already been seeing this. Um, it's probably on the same page. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to see um, how the people were already on to him even before this grand entrance. Um, verse 29 says, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men, two blind men were sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Notice that significant designation given to Jesus here by the blind men. Even the blind men can see who Jesus Christ is. Um, even, they, even they get it. The blind men could see that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. The crowds here are, are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna originally, early on in the Old Testament, took a, took a, a meaning to say, 
Um, save us, deliver us. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, deliver us. Um, but by the time the first century had come around, it, it had really transitioned into a, a cry of praise, a cry of adoration, uh, usually being given to God. God save us or God deliver us. Usually a, a praise of adoration because God has saved and God has delivered them. But why all these references uh, and why all this adoration to Jesus here as the son of David? Why that, why that designation? Um, again, I'm saying it's because the people recognized. They recognized um, that Jesus is the promised, the promised one, the promised seed that was to come, that uh, the scriptures that God had promised King David that there was going to be a king that would descend from him, a king whose kingdom would last forever. And that's, how, that's who they saw Jesus as being. Um, I'm going to read just that 2 Samuel chapter 7 passage for you again. I, I wish you, you had it memorized, and I wished every time you heard that language, king of, or, or uh, son of David, you were thinking this reference, because this is where it's coming from uh, most explicitly. But this is what God told David as soon as he had ascended to the, the throne as king over Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God promises David this. He says, when your days are complete and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. And so the people and the crowds who knew their Bibles, these Jews, they were making this messianic connection. Uh, they were shouting. The rest of the crowd here continued to shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote. That's a quote from Psalm uh, 118, verse 26. Uh, Psalm 118, in, in the previous four psalms, uh, in, that, in the Psalter, those are known as the Hallel Psalms. These are psalms that were quoted verbatim by the Jews um, as, as celebration, as commemoration during the Passover time. This is why they were quoting that. It was Passover time, and Jesus arrives at this time, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quote Psalm 118, verse 26. But what's so ironic about quoting Psalm 118, verse 26 is that four verses previous to that is Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that really becomes the issue, the stone being rejected. Um, the crowds here, yes, are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But where are these crowds? Where are these shouters of praise to Jesus five days later when Jesus is being crucified? Where, where are they? Where's all the, the, where's all the devoted followers of Jesus then? Um, Jesus knows the hearts of men as we already established Jesus was not taken surprise, actually, um, by the crowd's cries and by their seeming recognition of Jesus as being the Messiah. Turn now to Luke chapter 19. Uh, it's just the parallel account in the gospel. See, this is why you need parallel accounts. You just get so much more insight into what's going on here. Um, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, Luke chapter 19, picking up in verse 41... Notice this insight that Luke gives us as Jesus, even amid, uh, in the midst of the, the praises and the adoration and the seeming acceptance of him as King Messiah, notice what it says here. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you. 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Isn't that ironic? Now, Jesus doesn't see them as uh, recognizing the time of their visitation, but their shouts would make you think otherwise by the messianic connection they're making. But you see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he would not end up being the king that they were expecting. He knew that um, they were actually hoping Jesus to be a different king messiah, a different kind of king. And, and as I said, this is the great irony. This is the great irony of this whole scene. Um, we, of course, as, as I like to remind you, we have the great blessing of being born and, and living on this side of all of this fulfillment of, of Christ having come, all of the New Testament scriptures being written, explaining to us, giving us the insight into uh, what all was going on, what all Jesus was actually doing, and what all he did, what it meant. Um, but the Jews here, the Jews were working simply off of the Old Testament uh, prophecies and the Old Testament shadows. And apart from the enlightening uh, grace of the Holy Spirit, uh, brothers and sisters, I think we would have also misinterpreted um, as well, right along with them, uh, this Messiah to come. Uh, I just think it helps to acknowledge uh, this reality um, as the Jews here were expecting Jesus to be a kind of king that would free them from their Roman oppressors. That was their hope. And so what, what, why would they even think that? Um, maybe by way of example, just to relate to their misunderstanding, not that their misunderstanding is in any way okay or acceptable. No, it gets condemned. But just to maybe have an insight into this, think, for instance, of the passage we looked at last week, 2 Samuel chapter 9. As I was saying, it was a typological account of the king to come. As you think about the type, as you think of King David, did not King David um, uh, slay his enemies and bring peace through, through force and, and, and brought this peace to his people by... Um, defeating the Philistines? Wasn't King David the one with Goliath's head in his hand? Um, as you think about that, um, you see how King David seemed to be portraying a, a king who would come in victory and would defeat um, the, God's enemies. And so is it, is it really too far of a stretch for these Jews to imagine that the greater David would not come and do the same thing or even greater um, acts of vindication for his people? Um, I, I, I can see why the, why the Jews were thinking what they thought, you see. Um, the very book of Zechariah from which Jesus is fulfilling, um, that very book uh, gives this picture of the Messiah in Zechariah chapter, seven, or chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. It says there, The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see why they had this expectation? They had this expectation from, from the very scriptures themselves is why they expected Jesus to, to do and to set them free from uh, the Roman oppression. So where did they go wrong? Where did the Jews go wrong to assume that this is what Jesus was coming to do, to destroy their enemies for them? Um, as I said, I think we may have misinterpreted the scriptures as well if we were in them, and, and, I, and I think I can say that because it wasn't only the unbelieving Jews who misinterpreted Jesus' first coming. Um, notice what John chapter 12, verse 16 says about the very disciples of Jesus themselves. John chapter 12, verse 16, um, again, this is John's parallel account. All the Gospels give an account of the triumphal entry here. This is John's account um, and this is what he says immediately following the text we just read where it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Notice what it says next. These things his disciples did not understand at first. See, they didn't get it either at first. When did they get it? 
It says, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Isn't that interesting? How everyone seemingly missed it and misinterpreted what was going on in, in Jesus' triumphal entry here. This, this sad reality of this misunderstanding, this skewed expectation of Jesus' kingship here, um, this is what actually led uh, S. Lewis Johnson to entitle his sermon on this passage, The Untriumphal Entry. That's what he called it, The Untriumphal Entry. The crowds were looking for a triumphant king, not a humble, uh, not, a, not a suffering king. And, and so again, have I answered the question yet? What was their error? Where did they go wrong? Well, their error was uh, the same error that Jesus described to those men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 and 26, where Jesus told these men who were confused, disheartened, troubled, why did the Messiah die? I don't get this. Um, Jesus told them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? And I think that gets to the heart of the issue, the heart of the, the error. The people's error is that they failed to believe all that the prophets had spoken about the coming Messiah. Um, they only picked the aspects that the scriptures mentioned that they, that they wanted to grab a hold of and that they desired. Um, they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken about Christ. To not believe all the, the scriptures in this sense is a very common error even to this very day of many people who profess a worship of Jesus Christ. Um, anyone who does evangelism knows this to be the case as many uh, profess Jesus to be uh, their Savior, um, and they love uh, certainly certain verses of the Bible that speak of Jesus, and they love that Jesus of the certain verses of the Bible that they like, but quickly how they reject and quickly how they scorn the Jesus of the rest of the Bible if you are able to show them. And so really, um, as I said, it's not okay to misinterpret the Bible um, even if I can understand why they did it, Jesus says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Um, it's not our place as creatures, brothers and sisters, to pick and choose which characteristics of the Son of God that we'll accept and worship Him for and which ones that we'll reject. Um, no, we worship God as He says that He is because that is good. Because if He says this is how He is, you can trust that that is right, whether your logic or your reasoning agrees. Uh, we worship God how he says to be worshiped and think of him as he says uh, to think of him. But this is, in fact, uh, what the Jews had done with Jesus Christ. They had picked and choose uh, what aspects of his coming that they wanted to see. And uh, this is why they end up turning on him in just a, a few short days, many of them apparently um, turn from Jesus Christ and are not to be heard from again. Uh, ironically enough for the Jews, I say ironically because um, ironically for these Jews who wanted a conquering king, that's seemingly all they wanted, the ironic thing is is that Jesus actually will come one day triumphantly. He will. Jesus actually will literally and physically return to destroy his enemies. Um, that's, that's a fact, uh, but the scriptures also teach that Jesus' first coming, his first coming was to deal with the more primary enemy, and that is sin. This was the purpose of his first coming. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 told us, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the purpose of his first coming, primarily and so as we think here about um, having uh, a full view, uh, a full grasp of the importance of all of who Jesus is, notice just the last two verses in our section here, verses 10 and 11. Look, look what it says here now. Uh, it says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus. 
This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Gal- from Nazareth and Galilee. Now, I'm not sure uh, that the crowds had here. Uh, I'm not sure they fully grasped the significance of this description of Jesus Christ as as being the prophet. Um, I don't think they grasped it just from the details that we get in the text here. Um, I'm not led to believe that they they grasped really the the significance of the prophethood of Jesus Christ in the same sense that um, those crowds in John chapter 6 where Jesus fed the 5,000 did that miracle. And when he fed the 5,000, John chapter 6 says when they had seen this sign, it says, it says that they said of him, oh, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. I don't, I don't know if the crowd here is, is recognizing that significance. In John chapter 6, they're saying this is the prophet who was to come in the world, the one prophesied of uh, from Deuteronomy 18 specifically, um, where God promised Moses that another prophet would come and that he was the one to be listened to. Um, but whether they grasped the weight of this or not, uh, whether they really truly understood Jesus' full prophethood or not, I just think it's interesting that with this additional aspect being mentioned here at the end, um, what we're getting to see here is the full range in this section that we study here today. We really get to see the full range of the incarnate Son of God's work for his people. Um, we, just in what we've looked at, we've noted the fact that he's now prophet, priest, and king. We've actually seen all of those characteristics, if you, if you recognize it or not. He, he's the prophet. He's the prophet that would not just come and, and, and fulfill the word of God. He's the prophet of God's people, not in, that just, not in just that he speaks the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God incarnate. Jesus is the very word of God, and, and you need this prophet. You need this prophet because you need to know who God is. You need to know who God is, and so as you see the Son, you see the Father, that's how well this prophet speaks for God. He is God. He is God. The Son of God reveals to us the Father. Jesus is priest. He's priest for God's people. We know this as well, of course, from the book of Hebrews, but even as Jesus makes this trip to Jerusalem, he's coming as priest. Remember that text that we read? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to make an offering, to lay down his life. Jesus is coming to work uh, priestly duties for a priestly task, to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite value, that sacrifice, of course, being himself, the sacrifice that the priest is making. And and you need this sacrifice. You need this priest. Um, Because unlike him, you are not holy. You are not innocent. You are not undefiled. You are not separated from sinners. You are not exalted in the heavens like Jesus was. No, you need a holy substitute. That's what we need. We need a holy substitute. We need a a substitutionary atonement. We need a God-attested priest. That's what we need. We need a priest who God affirms. And as Pastor Emilio said earlier, God affirmed Jesus Christ's priesthood and his sacrifice by the resurrection from the dead. There could be no more sure attestation that Jesus Christ is God's priest and and sacrifice. Lastly, I think we've seen most clearly, obviously, the fact that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king um, here, specifically of God's chosen people. And we see that Jesus Christ is king, uh, like King David was king, in that he's he's a humble king. He's a merciful king, a king who will show mercy even to his very enemies. So brothers and sisters, the scriptures are clear. The scriptures are clear. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of the living God. He's the promised one of the Old Testament scriptures. Even though God used many typological figures in the Old Testament and in times past, there is no greater king than King Jesus. There is no greater king to wait for or to expect Uh, The great king has come. Brothers and sisters, we are so blessed to have the fullness of his revelation given to us in in the very scriptures and the very Bibles that we hold here. And as we do what we're doing even now, 
as we look into the scriptures, as we see Christ, as we see the King of Kings, we are seeing the very glory of our God. Let's pray. Well, Father, Father, we thank you for revealing your glory to us. We thank you that you've sent an incarnate one, one whom we can, can look into as we read our scriptures and, and not die. We can see your glory in the face of Christ as we read our Bibles. And so we thank you. We praise you for the word of God. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the, the time of peace that we still enjoy now in our country where we can gather and look at Christ together in peace. Father, have mercy on us. Give us more time, Lord, as we are stirred up in our church to devote more of ourselves to communion with you and to Bible study and to prayer. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you'll give our church time to mature in these things. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our nation. God, let us be a people who truly sees Christ for who he is, accepts all of the Christ that you've revealed him to be. God, let Heritage Grace be a beacon of light to this world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the great salvation that we have. We thank you. It's a privilege to be servants of the great King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.